but I find that for a conversation to be effective, it has to be talk, listen, and not just talk, talk. In your first one or two years in your career, it's important that you observe. And I thought that that was such a very human moment. And I wanted to work for a team where I felt that warmth. And I think the UN really teaches you to be a good person because every single day you're there, you're there because you deeply believe in a mandate. Welcome back to Business Night Out. I cannot believe it's been almost three months since I launched it. And looking back, it has been such a rewarding experience. So thank you so, so much for making everything come true. In this episode, we're so excited to have Amelia join us. Amelia is a senior analytic consultant at EY and also alumnus of RC and has worked in companies like KPMG and Metrolinx. She has a heart for spreading positivity and making a difference in people's lives, which is why she also served as a program management intern with the United Nations. So join us as we delve into her experiences, learnings, and her drive towards social responsibility. And let's get started. Thank you so much, Amelia, for joining me today. I'm so happy that you can be here. First, I would love to start this episode with five fun warm-up questions. So first, what is your favorite movie? Last weekend, I watched About Time again, and I loved it. What is your favorite fruit? Mango comes to mind and watermelon. I love watermelon. Watermelon is so good, and I love durian. I love durian, too. I like um, not many people love durian, but I think it's pretty good. Oh, what do they know? Durian's the best. It's the best. If you were going to an island and you can only bring three things, what are they? My boyfriend, because he'll do everything for me. And then two things that he gets to pick because he'll do everything. Coffee, tea, or alcohol? Tea. But I love them. I love coffee too. Although it makes me too excited. If you were starting your own podcast, who would you invite and why? I would love to invite my grandmother. I have been having this thought whether I should write a book about her. I grew up in Vietnam, so that means our parents' generation or grandparents' generation. My grandmother spent 37 years in war. So she raised children. She raised three children, all of that as a single mother during the wartime. And then by the time the war was over, first she had to live in a world where there was rationing. And then afterwards, technology came and globalization came, and then flights came. So for me, it's just so interesting to see that perspective of someone who lived through the war. And interestingly, she never talks about it. The people who lived through the war never talks about it. But I find that there's so many interesting stories. And if I were to do a podcast, it will definitely a series about women's voices for sure. What are the stories that we don't talk about? For example, at work right now, no one talks about how their wife must have, some of their wife took a career break to be able to support their career. But when it comes to us talking, and we do talk about it in a daily manner, but does that get to a podcast? It doesn't. It's not the official career talk we talk about, that our family members have had to support us to get here. So I want to hear more about those. I think first, your grandmother is definitely a powerful woman. She can do all those things. It's so impressive. 
Another thing I wanted to mention is that I know like we tend to ignore or overlook a lot of things we like females do, such as like those shorts that our mom's doing. And I know there is a book called Invisible Woman. And the yes. it also talks about little things we tend to overlook that's not fair to women. I think that's very interesting. Then I love that you read the book because it it was a very powerful book for me. It the fact that so say the cabinets, the kitchen cabinets, I'm never able to reach it. But why am I not able to reach it when I'm the main person cooking in the kitchen? And another thing that, so me, my grandmother and my mother, we all have different last names. But actually, I spent a lot of time with them. And of course, I value my identity as part of being my father's daughter. But one day it just kind of hit me that why is it that we all have different last names? So small things like that. And that's why I thought that part of it is because we're happy with the way it's set up. But that doesn't mean that we don't have something to say, something valuable to say. Yes. And as Amelia mentioned, this is such a powerful book. So I recommend everyone to read it. Now we've finished the five questions. First, Amelia, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your career journey, and the role as a consultant at EY? Of course, happy to be here. So I am currently a data and analytics consultant and senior consultant of Ernst & Young LLP based out of the Toronto office. And my team focuses on data analytics and AI. Within that, I've been there for the past, I believe, two years. And before that, I was with a few other consulting firms, including KPMG Lighthouse. I was a freelance consulting for two years. And also, I used to work at the United Nations as well as a program management intern. Mm-hmm. Oh, you mentioned that you're currently working as a data analytics consultant at UI. I'm just wondering what initially sparked your passion in consulting or data analytics? So a lot of it actually happened by chance. Originally, I never thought that I would get into consulting because when I was in school, I thought that consulting was basically reserved for extroverts, the people who are very outspoken, very loudspoken, who have perhaps 10 or 12 extracurricular activities on their belt. And I thought that you have to be a certain type of personality to get into consulting. So when I graduated, this was not what I thought I would be doing. I didn't know what I was doing. I graduated from a finance and economics program, and I realized that I did not really want to go through the career path that was traditionally reserved for the kids going to that program. Because back then, the way that they structured the finance and economics program is all of the kids go out to either work in investment banking or private equity or trading. And if not, Worst case, you go into corporate finance or you become a finance controller, but the path was always either be a trader or a CFO person. And I knew that I didn't want to do any of those, so I picked the opposite and I went to the United Nations because I thought, what can be the furthest away from a bank? And then at that particular team, everyone kept telling me that I'm very good at data and I'm very good at maths. So that first sparked okay, if people tell me that I'm good at this and I do enjoy doing this, that was the first area of niche, the niche area or area of expertise that I wanted to develop on. And I thought to myself, I wanted to be the person who could be able to use data to solve 
a global issue. For example, getting data to visualize out of 10 children in a world right now, how many of them are hungry? And of those, say, three children who are hungry right now, how many are we able to help tactically to permanently remove the issues that they face? And then I went back to Toronto. I thought to myself, I know what I want to do in life, kind of. I was still very young back then. And, but I still wasn't sure. I didn't think about consulting at all. And I just went back to work to the, at the hotel at the Shangri-La thinking, okay, I'll take a break from the corporate work and then I'll figure it out. Then I got headhunted. So someone just took my resume and then passed it along to the team that was then my first consulting role in KPMG Lighthouse. They introduced me, introduced my passion. The job wasn't even posted. So for me, it was all by chance. It was a series of good luck. And it wasn't posted. I came to the interview and then it started from there. That sounds like a very exploratory and fun experience, you think. Um, cause I'm just wondering, because you mentioned that you thought consulting is just for like extroverts. Uh, does that mean you consider yourself as an extrovert? Super. So yesterday was St. Patty's and I stayed home to watch the entire series of Modern Family. <laughs> I'm just wondering, how do you feel like your introverted nature or personality has helped you or created challenges for your career as a consultant? So very good question. I do see that in consulting, in my company right now, or in this world in general, consulting and finance are very interconnected. There's a lot of conversations that happen. And usually the extroverts drive the conversation. They would walk in, they make themselves heard, they are known, and their opinions are known. But I find that for a conversation to be effective, it has to be talk, listen, and not just talk, talk. And that's a problem is putting too many outspoken, loudspoken people in the same room. You may be talking, but you're not able to find a common consensus. So I find that the power of an introvert is our ability to take a step back and listen. We're very good listeners. And from there, for me, it still doesn't come naturally to know when to speak, to confront people when an idea is not exactly what the client wants. But by listening thoroughly, I think, we give ourselves that confidence that what we say has been thought through. And when we say it, I hope with the right team, I have found that with my team, they always allow me time for me to talk. So they do that by asking, what do you think, Amelia? And then that's where I would say my piece. I would say that I think this is not necessarily what the client is looking for. And have you considered A, B, C, D, E? So a lot of that doesn't have, it doesn't happen when you're just talking. And you're not listening to what the other person has to say. And furthermore, I find that we bring the fact that we're introverts, bring in a nice balance to the team. So it's also about like coordination in a teamwork environment where everyone has different personalities and they can just help each other. I think that's also like part of like responsibilities when you work in a team or in the consulting world, where there's a lot of like conversations going on and stuff. It's the, it's the ability to observe. I find that in your first one or two years in your career, it's important that you observe because we're still so fresh out of school that we haven't seen anything and you need to know what good looks like and what bad looks like. And to do that, you have to observe. Sometimes when you're talking your way out of your first or second year in consulting, 
you miss that opportunity to listen to what people, to see the mistakes others have made and the successes other people have realized. So that gives you the power to decide what is the best action you can take at that particular moment. I think in our typical impressions, consultants are, as you said earlier, a bunch of confident, outspoken people because they have to do a lot of talkings, dealing with clients and reporting their outcomes. So just to add on that, can you tell us a little bit about your role as a senior analytic consultant at EY? Like what is your day-to-day like and why do you choose EY? What's the favorite thing about EY? Of course, my day-to-day changes. Every day is a different day. But typically, I because I'm an external facing consultant, so I deliver engagements. We engage, we partner with the clients, so we call that an engagement. And my area of expertise is more into data architecture and analytics. So that means developing Power BI dashboards, developing AI solutions, and sometimes designing a data strategy, but not just focusing on what is the latest and nicest trend in the data market nowadays, but it's more about how do we actually make that happen? What is the data platform that is required to deliver all of the strategic objectives that we have? And in that data platform, what are the components and processes that are required? And then how do you group all of that together such that you, you're you not just doing a pet project for the IT team, but you're actually delivering value as an organization. So m- because of that, my day-to-day changes a little bit. Sometimes that particular problem comes in a form of they are more mature. They want us to come in and just build the product for them. Sometimes they're earlier in the conversation. So we have to act as an advisor saying that this is our point of view. This is how we think we can help you. And why EY is more part of it was personal and part of it was professional. The professional part was at the time, I really wanted to get into the team that had a technical leader because with data, to be good at data, you have to either understand the data or you understand the technology. And a lot of the times I see that in consulting, people can be good at neither, but because it makes sense to brand as data. So, and I wanted to grow an environment where there would be technical oversight, where I would feel safe to make a mistake and someone would point out to my mistake, say that this is how you could be doing this better. And um, EY had that environment that I was looking for. And the second thing was I wanted to look for a team that has a female leader. So with, at the time I was interviewing with a few different firms and got an offer from a few different firms. So one other big four firm, which I will not name who they are, they sent me an interview guide at 2 a.m. asking me to join for 9 a.m. the next day. And then the next day when I came, I saw that there were two very senior leaders, both male, interviewing me, both partners. And, and then the conversation was very strategic in nature. How if an organization was trying to deliver an AI or adopt AI, then what would they have to do? What would be the strategy we propose? So I realized that when I was talking about precision, recall, some of the more AI concepts on top of the strategic framework, it wasn't elaborated on. And for me, that was a cue that "Mm, then technical excellence is not what they're looking for Mm -hmm. and not what they prioritized. 
And then the opposite happens with EY when the entire recruitment process happens with a female face. So the first, the first interviewer, I talked about how I love working for the UN. I talked about how my dream job is still going back. And she was just like, great. I think you're great too. Let's move you to the next round. And then the final round was with another female leader who she specializes in solution architecture and BI. And for me, that gave me the confidence that maybe this is the team that I belong in. Not to mention throughout that entire recruitment process, my aunt actually passed away from COVID. So at that time, it was the same day that was supposed to have my EY interview. So I reached out to them and I told them that my aunt actually passed away this morning and I will still be able to come to the interview. But I hope you could please understand that I might not be fully myself today. And the response was a very kind response. It was, that's okay. Why don't we cancel today? And you just call us back whenever you feel ready. There is no rush. And actually there was a rush back then because they were hiring for a specific project. But I got that private time to myself. And the next time when I was ready to talk to them again, the first conversation started was, I am very sorry for your loss. And I thought that that was such a very human moment. And I wanted to work for a team where I felt that warmth. It sounds like EY really cares about its employees and really promotes such like a supportive and positive environment. I think that's definitely a company that takes on a bigger picture rather than focusing on the commercial side. Because you mentioned that you part of your responsibility was to engage and talk with clients. And you mentioned briefly about how active listening helps you when you communicate with clients professionally. I'm just wondering, do you have any other tips when it comes to professional and effective communication, such as with clients or with internal teams? So I think the biggest thing is that you have to understand your expectations at different stages in your career. When you're early in your career, then the expectation is for you to be present, not for you to necessarily speak up and lead a workshop. You have to understand what's going on so that you are able to take the workshop findings and you produce artifacts after that. And in the process of that, you have to be a very good learner. You have to be open to learning new things, asking the right questions and overall be helpful where you can be and then have to be open to coaching as well. Because early in your career, you will need coaching and you will need to learn how to receive coaching. Then when you further progress along your career, you will find that the expectation changes a little bit because now you're not expected to be a learner, but you're expected to be an advisor. So what does it mean to be an advisor? It means that you have to correctly diagnose a problem. You have to think, really think through what is the right solution we can provide given this particular problem, given that this is how much the client is willing to spend and how much time the client has for it. And for that, it becomes a step-by-step -step process. After you have done it for so many times, people get the experience to do that. But I still find that it's always helpful to walk into a room thinking that you don't know what you don't know and you want to know what you don't know. So with that mindset, you will walk in, you will correctly give the right advice given the problem that they actually have. And you can relate that back to friendships as well. I find that the most successful partnerships starts with a strong friendship. 
So when you're talking to your friend, your friend comes to you and say, I have this particular problem. Will you just give an advice right away? Will you listen to what problem do they have and ask some clarifying questions onto whether what is the help they're willing to receive? The same philosophy really applies with consulting. I think the part where you just admit what you don't know and have this willing to learn the things you don't know is very resonating with me because I feel like a lot of students, especially when we go to like internships in the workplace, we always tend to avoid to admit, I don't know this. And we tend to like show we're good at everything, but in fact, we are not. Uh, I think that's very important for us to recognize like there are a lot of stuff we don't know. We didn't learn it in school and we didn't learn it in life. And we need to learn that in the workplace. Just to build on that, I know a lot of students in commerce program or university, they also want to work in the data field. I'm just wondering, besides the communication skills, what other skills do you think are critical for data analytic consultant? I think it's really important to know what you're doing. So that means communication skills is more of a soft skill, which is very important. Without that, you're not able to effectively hold yourself in front of the clients, in front of your team. But you also need to know what you're talking about. You need to know the domain. The same way that you cannot walk into a trading floor without knowing what stocks are at risk today and what is the pricing of the market and what is the futures looking like. For data, that breaks down a little more. So to understand data, you need to, to do data and analytics. You need to understand the data or you need to understand the technology. If you're not understanding either of them, then sometimes you can take a step back and start with understanding the math. Because ultimately, the discipline of data started with math. For years, we had the same math, the same algorithms, the same way that we tackle a problem. And then only recently, we had the data and the technology. So that's why you see a lot of STEM students, they're able to pivot into data and technology quite easily because it's still the same problem-solving skill set using different syntaxes. For commerce students, and I relate to this a lot because I also came from a non-technical background, the biggest leverage I had was that I really understood the math. I understood what are the logical steps when it comes to solving this particular problem. So the first gateway was that that allowed me to understand the codes. In my first year of consulting, I wasn't able to code yet, but I was able to read and understand what are the logical steps that they were tackling. Then I took a step further to understand the syntaxes. And you can always do a lot of workshops. A lot of people use code camps and it works perfectly because you're starting out. It's totally okay to go to a boot camp. So then you learn the syntax. You learn what this data really means how this data get processed, what are the relevant processes, and what are the syntax to actually do that. So after the bootcamp, I recommend to think about what is a problem you're able to solve with what you know. So you need practice. You need practice to be able to know what you're doing. The same way with language. You may learn Japanese, but if you don't speak it, then you forget. And if you don't practice, you're also not a Japanese practitioner. So to be a data practitioner, you need to be able to translate all that you know into actual products. So step-by-step, step, I think the first, again, going back would be really understand the math. Second, you can start however you want. You can maybe take a course in data and analytics 
You can take a course in computer science. You can take a boot camp. Definitely take a course in statistics. And then three, practice, practice, practice. And then be very open with everyone saying that this is an area that I'm willing to learn more about. What are the advices that you have for me? Because advices will change at different points in time. The same way as data and technology, there are different focuses over the year. The past few years focus more on cloud engineering. So a lot of kids came more from a networking background. And then before that, it was data science. So a lot of kids came from statistics. I think everything will always change, but having that base of maths, maths doesn't change. So I feel like math and problem solving skills are very important in data world. Practice makes everything perfect, as we always say that. You come from a non-technical background. Did you take a lot of time to learn about the tech world, like coding, computer science, and what have been some of the most significant challenges you've ever faced in your career life? Yes. So I did have to spend the first two years really learning. When I graduated, I had everything that I knew belonged in the finance domain. And everything that I knew came out of school and I did not know anything when it comes to data or technology. So the first thing was when I went to an engagement, I read aggressively. The first engagement, a real machine learning engagement I was part of, it was about how do you design machine learning applications for financial application? And particularly, how do you design machine learning model for trade execution? And at the time, trading is something that is quite complicated. So I didn't know. My boss then gave me, who's still a very good friend to the day, he loaned to us a very big textbook when it comes to understanding how hedge funds work. So first, that's what I read. So we understood the context. What is the problem, the business problem or the strategic objectives they're trying to solve for? Then we thought back about the actual maths. because. A lot of the things that a lot of machine learning happens based out of math. And there were four particular ways, four particular models to tackle that particular problem. So then we went back to statistics to understand, okay, now what is an intensity model? And then we just rigorously read textbooks again. So for, for us, that was a lot of reading in the first year. And then finally, all of that translated over to how do we package this and translate the how do we translate all of this over to the final product? So that part, I had friends to help me. My friends still led the work, but I was just asking him a lot of questions. Why is this the case? And then I just read the codes to understand the logic a little bit more. So it, it was definitely a step-by-step -step, and I found that it was overwhelming because it was a lot of things I didn't know. But I don't think that should discourage everyone because that just means that you have a lot more interesting questions to ask. So that was the first engagement where I found it challenging. And then for the ones after that, I actually told myself, I would like to become a manager who really understands the engagement that I'm delivering to. I would like to understand the data and I'd like to understand the tech. So I did exactly what I said that everyone should do earlier. I took courses. The first course I took was how do you use Python to deliver insights because I thought that this is what I know I want to do right now. And that related back more to my UN aspiration that I would be that data visualization person. And then I went back over to the data science. 
So how do you actually build a model? Because back then, the problem I was thinking about is, I saw this problem at the World Bank where they were trying to tactically collect the data along the Mekong Delta River so that they could design the right program to tactically tackle poverty. So that's where a lot of it comes by chance. So you see a problem and you want to understand what this problem really means and how do you solve it. So it's very much step by step. To the day, I'm still not the most technical person, but I can understand how they're trying to tackle it. I think it's very impressive to hear that you just knew your goal at the very early stage and you also knew what you needed to to do to achieve that goal. I think that also translates to your heart for this world, for children's rights, for poverty and social issues. And you also mentioned the project you did in the United Nations. I'm just wondering, could you explain like what made you want to work for nonprofit organizations like United Nations and other organizations? Back then, it was because of my stubbornness of not wanting to work for a bank. And I thought to myself, what would be the most different from working for a bank or an investment bank specifically? And I thought that not-for-profit would be the furthest away for profit. So it was, for me, like a rebel move. And I would, I would say that when I was in my early 20s, I never thought that I knew what I was doing. To the day, I still struggle thinking what would be my next step. I still don't know. But it made it easy to think, what do I like doing today? So sometimes it's really hard to answer such a big philosophical questions of what should I be doing for the next few years? You won't know. You don't know what you don't know. So for me, it just meant that I don't want to do finance, so I'll do something different from that. What I like doing is that same year I wrote a children's book. So I thought, okay, then maybe that's the gateway. This is something I like doing. And I wanted to live in New York, so I'll do that. Applied to New York and Switzerland and then picked a New York job. And and then over there, I just fell in love. I fell in love with the world. And I think the UN really teaches you to be a good person. Because every single day you're there, you're there because you deeply believe in a mandate. You deeply believe that, that there's good to be done. Otherwise, you would not be there. You do not go to the UN for the money and you do not go to the UN for the fame. You go there because you do really believe in the mandate and that there's good to be done. So I just fell in love with being part of that team that believed in something that is truly good. And of course, I still hear that there's a lot of lashbacks onto the relevance of the UN in the modern world. But at the same time, for me, that is a problem that I'm not able to solve. But the problem I'm able to solve is that I want to do something that was meaningful. So I went there and then I just fell in love with my team. So I wanted to stay. A lot of it happened in increments. People talk about career as if it's a big rocket shoot, but I don't feel that that's the way. For me, it was just very small steps that told me what I liked, what I didn't like. and then. There is more interactions of my colleagues that told me the right advice and the well-intentioned advice. And I just followed all of that. My very first exposure to the UN is when I was in high school, I attended a book camp that was hosted by the UN woman. And to be honest, that book camp opened a huge door for me to feminism, women's rights, and equity. Because we were taught to 
recognize a lot of the overlooked, underlying challenges in the society that women are facing in modern days, such as domestic violence. And I think there's still a long way for us to really have a truly inclusive and equal world, but just by recognizing the existence of these challenges is already a good sign to me, and I really hope that they could come soon. Besides your interest in data, what else did you learn from your experience with the United Nations that you wanted to share, and how has that impacted your current job or your career overall? So interestingly, the UN did not prepare me for consulting because when you go into the UN, you're actually taught to be apolitical. People do not get promoted. You have to apply to get to the next level. And a lot of the times we're always content with the level that we're at. Because at the end, if you're not there for the career aspirations and you're there for a purpose, you would be happy to be at the level where you're able to deliver the right impact that you want to deliver. So that was a lot of the mindset for the people that I interacted with on a daily basis. We were very apolitical, despite the fact that we were at the most political organization in the world. So going over to consulting, that did not prepare me well, because consulting operates a little bit differently in the sense that you have to be a little bit politically savvy. And unfortunately, that has been the advice I've been given as well. You need to be able to observe and you need to be able to stay out of trouble. It's the way that I would put it. And the UN did not prepare me for that. For the first year, I struggled. And the second thing was also that I worked for the UN in the US. It taught me to be very straight. The working style and the communication style is a little bit different. And also, I have an Asian background. So we are direct. Sometimes we will not. We will wait for our turn to speak. That is true. There's a cultural aspect of that. But when we do, we are very direct. And, and that gave me a bit of culture shock when I joined the Canadian workforce for the first time in such a large organization because communication in Canada happens differently. You have to deliver the message the right way and everything has to come with a much softer blow. And I didn't know how to do that. I said things without any filter and part of it comes with being very young. So, and again, that, that comes back to my point earlier that you have to be in the right environment where you're allowed to make mistakes and that people will teach you to learn from those mistakes. So there are good and bad things. So UN taught me to be a good person. I hope so. But it did not prepare me for working in a private sector where it's more promotion oriented, where the competition is fiercer. I think especially in the business world, like consulting, it's pretty aggressive. Everyone tries so hard to work and stuff. Definitely having this UN experience helps with either business ethics or your personality. I think that's very valuable. Now let's come to the end talking point. Looking ahead, where do you see yourself in five or 10 years and what are your career goals? Right now, I don't know. And that's my very honest answer. Um, I think, and that's because looking ahead has the career and the life aspect to it. And I know that my male colleagues would not have the same thought, but I, I really think about what happens when I start a family. When, is the, when will be a responsible time for me to take a pause from my career to be with my family? 
And that is such a big problem that I don't have an answer for. So I try not to think about that. I just try to think about what are the things I would like to learn, what are the things I would like to um, achieve. So I would like to be better when it comes to data and analytics. And that means I'd like to understand the code a little bit better. And I would like to be to grow to a person who's able to deliver a very technical engagement. So a very so I want to deliver very good product with technical excellence, but also with with good user value. So that's my short-term goal right now. And and I really emphasize that it's really hard to think ahead to what five or ten years ahead looks like because. I have two friends in Canada right now. Um, so those two girls, one of them used to be working in a Japanese hospital. And she quit her job to come here to support her family. And I think that's a very real story that a lot of us face. I have another friend who was on track to become a CFO at a brand in Southeast Asia too, um, in, in East Asia. And she quit her job to come here to support her husband. So those are very real stories. And there are times in our life where either one of the spouses will have to pass our career to support the others or both of the spouses pass our career to support our child. I think that part doesn't get spoken about a lot, but I do feel that it's a very real aspect of being a female in tech that we think about that. I think it's not... Even just female intact, it's actually like all the females need to make this choice at what point at their career. I think that's definitely something we need to consider when it comes to career path and the future life, especially it's just not that applicable when we compare it to males because they have less concerns about this. And the the very sad truth as well is it. Like it's part of life. And I think for me, the best things happened outside of work, not during work. My father taught me that your career is there to support your life. And then I go to North America and a lot of the men who work, who I work for believe that your life supports your work. So I think it's a really take and it's a personality thing. It's really hard to decide. I guess my last question would be, what advice would you give to other students who want to contribute to communities like what you used to do or considering a career in data or consulting? I think that the biggest thing is to have a, an attitude where it is okay to start small. It's okay to do small things. You do not have to do something that's so grand. You don't have to be... um saving the world in one day because that's not a realistic ask if you want to do something impactful you should think about what is the smallest action that's impactful that you're able to deliver today so when you're time bounding it and when you're thinking about the when you're taking on the work that you're able to execute on it becomes easy and a lot of it happens in increments it doesn't happen overnight. So you have to break the problem down to smaller chunks that you are able to deliver over a long period of time because it's all a marathon, it's not a sprint. And do not be intimidated by the sheer idea of anything. 
for example, I felt intimidated by the idea of consulting because I thought I was too introverted to make it in this world. I thought that I would not be able to get into the UN because I didn't have the right background. Why would a finance kid go to the UN? Usually those are reserved to the kids who do international relations, public policy. But I really think that just identify things that resonate with you and that you like doing as well. When you keep doing the things that you like doing, you become motivated and you take on the work that you're able to execute. So you become confident in your ability to deliver and then keep up that momentum over and over. And then one day you get to where you want to be. There's a word called um, analysis paralysis. Do not fall into that trap. Sometimes you're just overanalyzing the problem when the truth is you can do it without having to analyze it that much. That's so inspiring. It's always us creating barriers and fears for ourselves when in fact there's nothing to be scared of. So I think definitely get started and be ambitious is very important. And I think that's the end of this podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so, so much for inviting me. This was really fun.